Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. Today on episode 14, we're looking at our surroundings in a whole new light as we explore some unique ways that opera can exist outside of the opera house. That's right. While darkened auditoriums and soaring concert halls are one way to experience the art form, there's some really exciting things going on right now with site-specific opera and even virtual reality. Yeah, and this goes way beyond opera al fresco. We're not just talking about transplanting traditional productions to outside environments. Creators today are delving into the possibilities that total immersion can offer and using specific spaces to add layers to the audience experience, and sometimes to reveal things about the operatic works that were always there, but maybe we just never noticed. Joining us for this episode are two of the industry's most forward thinkers, American opera and theater director Yuval Sharon and Canadian interdisciplinary performance artist Debbie Wong. We started our exploration by chatting with Yuval. And to catch everyone up on his bio and work to date, Yuval is Artistic Director of the Industry in Los Angeles, which is dedicated to new and experimental opera. He was also recently announced the Gary L. Wasserman Artistic Director of Michigan Opera Theatre. Yuval has produced opera in train stations, on sound stages, uh, in moving vehicles, and all kinds of other non-traditional venues that include warehouses, escalator corridors, and parking lots. Last fall, he directed a take on Wagner's Gutu Damerung called Twilight Gods. This piece was basically part installation, part drive through radio broadcast, and it asked audiences to navigate their way through a parking garage for a one-hour English adaptation of the Ring Cycle finale. And you've all received some considerable acclaim for Sweetland, another site-specific project, a new opera created to be experienced in LA's State Historic Park. Here, audiences were separated into two groups, and they were physically drawn into exploring several narrative viewpoints about the founding of the U.S. and the erasure of some important truths in American history. We were curious about what set Yuval on the path to creating and directing this kind of work. So we began by asking him to share what's been significant in his experiences as an audience member attending immersive performance. I experienced, you know, an early piece by the by the company Punch Drunk that did that did Sleep No More. Uh, I saw them do it do a sort of a retelling of Faust, you know, in in London uh, several years ago. I remember that being a very formative experience for me because I thought the the actual encounter with this work and the actual experience of moving through this building and and choosing your own adventure. I really I really enjoyed it, but I also remember feeling like I was I was hoping for more somehow or I was hoping for a, a richer experience or one that was going to be more than just about uh, uh, moving through a space, but also about how that move through a space could also be, uh, you know, could be telling a story. So, so the notion that narrative might be able to be transferred from the libretto to the experience of the opera. And then also realizing that that experience of a piece of work in a way can be the content of what is actually being described. So I, I think that was a fairly formative experience for me. I remember also going to a number of visual art installations around that time that were about creating environments. And that felt very similar to sort of the punch drunk pieces. The notion of um, taking in all three dimensions of the experience as opposed to sitting and watching something on a stage uh, to me, there is a challenge as soon as you think about the directionality of the human voice with opera, you know, and that, you know, as soon as we put people in on the stage and in the proscenium, you know, there's really only one place that that the singers can go, you know, they, they need to be heard in one in one sort of direction. So, I mean, I think that as I was developing ideas with my company, the industry in Los Angeles, I did start to think about the in- introduction of the amplified voice and the introduction of a voice that is um, that can allow for a multidimensional experience. But my hope was that that could also open us up to offer not just a cool experience, but also to think about how that experience could be also what we're trying to convey. 
Mm, I love that idea that the three-dimensional experience is the content yeah. of the inventor of the performance. I'm somebody who, when I'm in a concert hall, I am looking all around. You know, I probably people that sit behind me must think I'm terribly distracted, but it's I'm not distracted. I'm just, you know, I think that one of the exciting things about seeing live performances, one of the things we're, we're, we're all missing so terribly, is, is that our gaze is not fixed, you know, the way that it is in cinema, the way that it is in everything that we're watching online. You know, it's like in the end, you know, the, the multiplicity of perspectives that is offered when we're sitting, even when we're just sitting in an auditorium and there's so much going on on stage, um, you know, that has been taken away from us in this in this year, you know, and suddenly we really are focused in on what the, the director or the video director wants us to focus on. But when I'm watching, especially when I watch concerts, uh, you know, in, in a concert hall, I am looking around at the lighting, I'm looking or I'm looking, I'm reading in my program, um, I'm hopping around, my, my gaze kind of jumps from the person who's playing maybe the solo to the person who's cleaning their instrument at that moment, you know? And and that is actually a really wonderful uh, uh, mode of seeing, I think. And I think that somehow, I think in the last, certainly and certainly in the last um, period of time when, when film has become a more prominent art form, I think that we tend to confuse what happens on stage with a kind of cinematic approach, which means that it's all about everyone needs to focus on one thing at a time. And I find that utterly dull, you know, and that, that the, the notion that we can offer so many possibilities simultaneously, not creating a chaos or not creating a, a cacophony by any means, but instead thinking that there are lots of different perspectives and the more that we can hold different perspectives, um, the, the more exciting and the more, the more uh, relevant I think opera is. I'd like to see opera being connected into the immersive environment that is our everyday lives. So in LA, it's been about doing operas in, train, in, in, the, in the operating train stations, you know, while people are coming and going. Or it's been, uh, you know, in a moving vehicle, you know, with with the singers in the moving vehicle with you. And as you're turning and looking, there's the life of the city is happening outside of you. So it's not an immerse. It's not being immersed into another fiction. It's actually being immersed and realizing uh, the possibilities in the world around us. That's been so interesting for me. I can't help but think about Sweetland. And mm. so in this production, it seems to me that audiences are implicated in the action. Mm -hmm. They absolutely are. And around them and that they're being set up to sort of feel some accountability perhaps and to participate yes. in a way in this allegory of colonialism. Um, and we had a, a previous podcast guest, musicologist Rena Rusin, who actually brought this into the conversation when we were talking oh, wow. about opera and activism. Nice. So we'd love to know, what do you think, um, specifically with experiential works like Sweetland, what is it about them that can bring audiences into current and important cultural conversation? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. It's a great, it's a great assessment of um, a really key aspect of what Sweetland was about. Um, I think that, um, I think there's a very important distinction to be made between a kind of activist approach and then the artistic imperative of creating a, a, a work of art, you know? Um, there is There are places where they overlap and I think there are really important and necessary places where they diverge. And I like to think of myself, I would never, uh, I would never deign to call myself an activist, even if I am, you know, like an activist is someone who's actually, you know, like not just making a work of art, but but really, uh, uh, putting their really putting their their life on the line for change, you know, like on the on a systemic and policy level. So even though I, I do feel very politically engaged as an individual, there is something different that happens when I'm creating a work of art, which means that it has to hold a lot of different and sometimes contradictory perspectives. But one of the things that I think is 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 an inherently political act is questioning our notion of spectatorship. Sweetline was by definition a, a project in which you could not be a passive spectator. You know, you 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 were on the move and you were you were uh, constantly, you know, pushed from one basically one location to another and your experience of Sweetland was inherently different from at least half of the audience in a very obvious way because half the audience went down one path and saw one story and then half the audience went down another path and saw another story all under the title of Sweetland, you know? So two people that, that I guess saw the same opera kind of didn't see the same opera, you know? And that, it, that in a way in its formal conceit is already an, 
it's kind of what I said earlier about that form actually being the content. You know, the, the, that, that formal experience ends up being so much of what we're trying to, trying to convey um, as it relates to issues of uh, nationhood and relations of uh, indigeneity and all of those kind of notions that, that are, are un, have been unexplored or not explored enough, you know, by the dominant culture. Um, and certainly not by opera. So, so I think that that all of that is a, is a way of saying the way that Sweetland was experienced was in every way an encapsulation and a microcosm of the very ideas that we were hoping to express with Sweetland. The notion of spectatorship and what that means, and angle and lens, and and the, the, what you come to the performance with in terms of your cultural background, in terms of your privilege. That's absolutely right. There is a, a French philosopher whose name is Jacques Rancière, and his work has been very inspirational for me early on and remains so. And he wrote a fantastic book called The Emancipated Spectator. He said that sometimes what seems to be active spectatorship is actually another form of passivity. And for that, when I heard that, I really thought, oh, that's what that's what was that's what I struggled with with, with a lot of kind of um, um immersive projects because it, yes, you may it may seem like you are choosing your own adventure, but actually, you know, there is a there is a there is an inherent passivity to the experience in terms of how much you actually uh, how how much you actually affect the experience in any particular way. You know how what is you know what you know and is that even desirable? You know, um, and uh, what is often called passive, meaning sitting in a theater. Um, isn't there a lot of activity possible within just having one fixed perspective in, in a seat in an auditorium? Uh, if for exactly what you said, Julie, of like, you know, you're you're still constantly going back and forth between your uh, what you're seeing on stage and your own experiences, you know, and that actually, you know, is a, is a big shaper of the experience, you know, and that's something that I uh, that I that I, I thought I, I, I always go back to and think about um, and realizing that we can't assume anybody's background um, and, and how they are going to uh, engage with this particular with the particular piece that you put in front of them, you know, and so somehow you have to create a space in which you are saying something with a you know saying something very decisive but but not exclusionary so it's it's a, it's a it's it, these are all in the end political questions even if they end up being quite different from 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 uh from activism now before the pandemic you were going to take a sabbatical in japan i understand yes yes yeah and so instead you stayed here and you put on one of the most ambitious uh, operas staged in North America during the last year. And I'm wondering, why is taking risks and doing new things in art so important during times of crisis? I think the, the short answer to that is um, it's always an important time. You know, there's never, <laughs> there's never a, uh, there, there's, you know, there's never a wrong time to take a risk. I think if you stop taking risks, you're not doing art, you know, because mm -hmm. it's, it's like, you know, this goes back to a kind of a fundamental question I've been thinking about a lot. You know, is opera an art form that affirms what we know? You know, is it an, is it an art form that is about a kind of confirmation? Because um, that comes with it a lot of things that I think we don't, that I don't think we want to affirm anymore or that we don't want to mm. confirm this kind of, uh, like, you know, there's, there's a lot in opera that is hierarchical, that is colonialist, that is um, exclusionary. You know, and so if we're affirming a certain vision of the past, we're also affirming all of that. So, so I don't think that that is the way that opera can go. Instead, to me, the opposite of that is an opera that is about potentiality and about possibility and is about projecting an idea. And that I think is way more interesting and way more exciting. And that makes opera an art form of the imagination. And that's something that that's the kind of opera that I am. And that is inherently risky, too, because that means you're not you're not relying on um, you're not relying on the way things were done, you know. And even if it is a standard repertoire piece, it's a classic opera, um, the, all the more reason to take even more risks with it. Right. So in Detroit next year, we're going to reopen the theater. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Twilight Gods and I'm happy to talk about that more. But um I'm thinking ahead now to to our next our, our next season, our upcoming year, and one of the projects that we announced was a piece that I'll direct, Puccini's La Boheme, uh, that we're going to do in reverse order. We're going to start with Act Four, and then we're going to do Act Three, and then we're going to do Act Two, and then we're going to do Act One, 
So we end with Mimi and Rodolfo in love and singing O Suave Fanchula, voices from offstage is how the, the, the opera is going to end. I think this is an idea that I have been developing for a long time now, but it's time has absolutely come for so many reasons. And, um, you know, in many ways, I, 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 I put the idea out there. I thought it was a really big risk. I actually wasn't sure if uh, Michigan Opera Theater was ready to take this kind of risk um, because, you know, this, this is, this is really a departure in, in a big way, you know, even if, you know, that actually visually it's going to be 19th century France, you know, but um <laughs> But the storytelling is going to be totally different. And I am just thrilled that everybody is excited about it. You know, I mean, I, I was ready for people to be, you know, you know, uh, ripping up their digital programs and, uh, and, you know, being upset about it. And I don't know. All I've heard is incredible curiosity and enthusiasm. And it reminds me that, you know, audiences, audiences want things that audiences want things that are different and exciting and new, you know, even if it's something that they find familiar, you know, I think, I think there is somehow a perception of the audience that people get really tripped up on. And I think with strong, and I see leadership, I see my role as an artistic leader is to uh, excite people for the kind of things that they never even knew were possible. I'm not saying I want to do every opera backwards by any means, you know, like this is, I do understand that this is a very, you know, strong step in the direction I want to go. Um, and it's also very much not just about me. I mean, that's me as a director, what interests me about La Boheme and how I think La Boheme has so much unexplored territory because it's, it's so often done in a, in a pretty rote way, you know, because it's so beloved and, you know, it, it kind of does itself in so many ways, you know, which means that it's been unexplored for so long and it has become a kind of uh, ossified cliche, you know, and, uh, and it's not fair to, to poor Puccini, you know, as a playlist when I hear it in reverse order, I just think what, what amazing moments I've never noticed before, you know, because I just kind of go along with the, with the, I go with the flow of hearing it, you know. And suddenly all of these incredible little moments, you know, are, 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 are heard in a brand new way. And I think for me, when it comes to standard repertoire, that is my real goal. I want, I want to be able to offer it in a new way, in a way that, that is totally loving of the work. You know, it's not a destruction of the work. It's not a, it's not a deconstruction out of, out of a, uh, out of doubt in the work's validity. It's actually a total affirmation of the work's validity. But I know in the case of the Bohem, it's gonna be such a memorable experience, you know? And even if people say, I can't wait to see it again in the normal order, that's fine, you know? People, they, they'll have a chance to do that, you know? Like, La Bohem's not going anywhere. <laughs> but um, but I'm I'm also just so thrilled that we'll be doing the uh, the second production of uh, Anthony Davis's Opera X yes. immediately mm -hmm. after that, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. those two pieces to me, in my, in a, those are the two pieces that we'll do in our theater. Mm -hmm. The other pieces we'll do will be in, in various other venues because of the pandemic primarily, you know. It seems like now is the time where theater is so unfamiliar by virtue of the fact that we've been shut out, that everybody will be exploring theater as a new concept again once we all go back in. So, but to go back outside the, the opera house, I'm wondering what location would you love to set an opera, but that you haven't yet? Oh, there's so many. I mean, you know, the, there's so many places that are that are possible. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in in Detroit are all of the all of the kind of sites that have an incredible history. You know, for a while, Detroit was considered the kind of Paris of America because of all of these incredible uh, incredible buildings from the 20s, you know, and 30s, a lot of which are, are still standing, some of which are in some kind of uh, in-between stage, you know. Um, and uh, I think that notion, I think that notion of these sites that have history and, and um, spaces that have a kind of resonance with uh, the life of the city it's something that some are, those are sites that I really want to take opera to. So I think every city has within it probably some place in which the live performance can be a layer, you know, that can help excavate some of these historical ideas. Certainly in the, in the case of Sweetland, the opera I did here in Los Angeles, that was a big part of it. You know, thinking about how this, this live performance becomes a trace on a piece of land um, that has within it these um, in, incredible and um, 
traumatic stories that 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 are not told often enough, you know? And so what does it mean to to what does it mean to to just point our attention to that and thinking about the role of myth making in, in in the in the stories that we tell about ourselves? And I don't think every piece um, needs to be doing that, but I also think that there uh, there there is so much. Uh, there, let, let me put it this way: There's this great quote by John Cage, which I've always loved, which is the notion that theater is all around us and art's role is merely to point us. Uh, to the fact, uh, to point us to that fact, you know, um, he puts it much more beautifully than, than I did just now. So it's not a direct quote, but, um, but the sentiment is something I really, really believe in. It was so great chatting with Yuval. Yeah, now like he's joining us from LA, but the fact that he's going to be in Detroit, which is actually so close to Toronto. Right. And I was just so taken with the idea of Boam backwards, like taking yeah. this very standard work and turning it around. And, you know, after we talked to him, I went and reordered it in my playlist and listened to it backwards. Oh, you did. I did. And it completely changed how I understood oh, cool. the opera. And I think there's a, there's such a power in that in taking these old ideas and sprucing them up, especially right now when we're caught in our homes, we're in lockdown, our lives are flat and disconnected. And, you know, it's really easy to forget that there's joy in things. And when you listen to Boem backwards, it makes you ask, was the pain worth it? And it absolutely was. Yeah, that's beautiful. And as a director, I often find myself thinking about what specifically I want the audience to be seeing or hearing or experiencing in any given moment. But the idea of creating a performance scenario with the express goal of allowing each person to edit their own experience to guide their eyes and ears, or purposefully creating or reordering things to bring about that new understanding or that new way of experiencing it. I think it's a wonderful new way of uh, looking at things and it's going to be staying with me for a long time. And of course, our second guest is taking things to the next level when it comes to new ground for staging opera. Debbie Wong is a Canadian mezzo-soprano who is the founder and artistic director of Renaissance Opera. The company is based in Vancouver, where their activity is driven by local artists with a commitment to equity, intersectionality, innovation, and collaboration. In 2014, they tackled cyberbullying in an interactive social media opera called Hashtag Dido and Aeneas. And the production was the first to use social media and instant messaging to interact with the audience through a virtual world outside of the performance. Debbie's company has also done some work with Opera Told Through Podcast, which we'll dig into a bit later. And she recently became creative director of Orpheus VR, a project currently in development. The virtual experience is based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and plays like a choose-your-own-adventure opera, complete with moral implications. With the many industry hats that she's worn, we started by asking Debbie about her journey down all these different pathways. As a young singer, I was really interested in stories and the kinds of stories we were telling on stages and what agency I had over storytelling as an emerging artist, emerging performer and singer. And I came from it from the Baroque opera, Baroque early music, historically informed performance practice, whatever you want to call it, genre. Um, and what I loved about studying music in that context was the sort of historical context that we were um, encouraged to engage with. Uh, but as I kind of started like, you know, settling into myself and my own artistic ideas, I realized that there's not, it didn't feel like there was a lot of room for my own forms of storytelling within uh, the the kind of framework of being a classical singer as I understood it as an emerging singer. And that very much led to me wanting to create my own company or my own platform for experimenting with these new storytelling um, ideas. 
And I sort of did two things simultaneously. One was I started a PhD program in Finland at the Sibelius Academy. And the other was I formed Renaissance Opera. And uh, both were kind of experimental playgrounds for me. As a doctoral student, I was bringing more physicality into my practice. I was taking improv classes and trying out all different kinds of uh, artistic experiences to inform my art making. And then with Renaissance, I was looking at the bigger picture and how I could fit into the kind of cultural landscape we are all weaving together across these lands that we colonially call Canada. Um, and that's sort of how I ended up as a producer, uh, which is, uh, for me, kind of taking this sort of creative uh, bird's eye view look at things and thinking about how I can bring different people, different artists, different ideas into the uh, operatic sector to tell new stories and create new stories. And one of the questions we like to throw around a lot um, is what would opera look like if it were invented today? And that is how we sort of end up in this other realm of art making, which is uh, bringing in digital artists and thinking about online and digital content as well. Thank you for bringing that question into the conversation of what would it look like if it was created here and now mm. today. That's a great, a great thing to ponder. And um, having met you through sort of Vancouver's indie opera scene, um, I know <laughs> we're all just so grateful for your leadership and your creativity and advocacy. So it's really great to have this opportunity to chat with you and to introduce our listeners to you as well. Now, as someone who's been on every side of the stage, you've been in in the audience, on stage, behind the scenes producing. How do you find that each perspective shapes your decisions and experiences in the other areas? Yeah, I actually think that that's such an important thing for all artists or audience members or creators, um, because I think the performance just in general is a really beautiful space for community. It's a beautiful space where we bring people in from all different walks of life, whether they've had a great day, a bad day, whether they are identify as an artist or not. Um, and we can we are all collaborators. We all enter into this sort of social contract to be together for this certain amount of time time in this certain storytelling context. And we're all going to kind of like give into the make believe or whatever it is that we are co-creating that day. And so having the experience as the audience co-creator or as the composer co-creator or the co-creator co-creator, however you want to call those roles, is so important if we are going to continue fostering these really meaningful social interactions that happen in performance. And I think that's something that I try to kind of hold on to as we are creating new works or commissioning new works. And I'm just really curious when you first moved away from being just a performer and started to get into those other fields of practice, were there any particularly illuminating experiences that you had? One of the big things that I feel is really becoming clear now is that we and I do not have a fixed idea of what opera has to look and sound like. Um, but I do have a very fixed idea of what the process should look like or feel like. And uh, and in that way, I'm sort of thinking about opera as a tool that we use to bring communities together, these communities that I just kind of alluded to, um, to, bring, to bring communities together and to co-create and tell stories together and how what that story ends up looking like is very much a product of whoever's in the room at that time and who we've who we've taken care to invite into that room and I think that's the the aha moment that I had that we can if we're using opera as a tool if we're really thinking about the process and how we are inviting people and artists into that process then what we come out with is going to be very different storytelling musical operatic experiences and they can all coexist together without taking away from one version of what we think opera is now you've really invited audiences in to participate in 2014 in Dido and Aeneas there is the use of instant messaging and social media to involve the audience in the story and to help develop the world outside of the performance. Can you tell us more about how that worked? That was such a fun production. It was our very, my very first thing, like a larger production as a producer and performer um, and, you know, script writer, dramaturg. And uh, the idea was how can we uh, look at this story, Dido and Aeneas, which is told all the time, especially the opera by Purcell, 
it's performed everywhere consistently. How can we look at that story and tell it today in a way that makes sense and resonates with people? Um, and kind of step away from that damsel in distress sort of uh, image of Dido that we get all the time and the sort of like evil sorceress and these kind of stereotypes that are really persistent in our field. And uh, at the heart of that story, I realized it's about someone who is getting bullied for her life choices, basically. And that's something that as a female identifying person, we experience, I experience quite often, you know, there's all these ideas of what I should be or shouldn't be. And, you know, we're, we're used to this. But um, I wanted to kind of pull that idea through the story. And at the time uh, we were creating it, I remember I was standing on a subway platform in New York and I saw this, she looked like she was about nine years old um, girl with her grandma. And her grandma kept asking her like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And this little girl finally said, I'm getting hate tweeted. And this like broke my heart. I was like, this like young, young person is getting hate tweeted. And so this was when cyberbullying was just kind of becoming like a really known issue. But for older generations, it's just completely baffling. And like, nobody understands what that means. And this grandmother didn't know. And so I saw an opportunity there to bring cyberbullying into the forefront of this conversation, because that is how we bully people these days. This is how we, you know, it's still happening so much. And so what we did with that production is Dido was the subject of cyberbullying. Um, her, you know, one of her colleagues at school thought that she wasn't cool enough and decided to kind of like just start poking fun at her online. And when she falls in love with one of the popular people at school, this bully gets a photo of her and posts it all over uh, all over social media. And what happened in the production is that we set it in a bar um, in real time. So it was site specific. But at the door, everyone left their phone numbers to be on a group chat. And so our tech person was live chatting with the audience. Um, and it was coming from the perspective of the bully, like behind this, behind Dido's back. So if you're in the audience, you're seeing your notifications, you're seeing your social media being populated with these really, you know, awful things that are said all the time and also photographs of her. And this, you get this sense of like, you're participating in it and it's fun because we're in a performance, but then you're seeing the effects of it on stage as well. And um, it kind of creates that conversation of understanding now what that is and seeing the effects play out um, in front of you. get to see the effects of bullying like um, cyberbullying in real time and this is an example of you get to see in a dramatized fashion the immediate impact and I'm wondering how audiences reacted to that yeah the production was really well received and you know famously at the end of Purcell's Dido and Aeneas Dido kills herself and the way we translated that was to the implication of like serious self-harm and um, which is what we see from a lot of uh, a lot of like what we see from as the effects of cyberbullying and so that's what we left the audience with with this image of this kind of vibrant young woman uh, who you know is just you know enjoying high school and figuring out what it means to kind of go out into the world as an independent person but being yeah being thwarted by this online bullying and then seeing the effects of that and how it like physically is is affecting her and emotionally um and the audiences received it really well it um at, it sold out for all th i think we did three nights um and it quickly sold out so we were really sad that we didn't actually have a longer run and um people had lots of great questions for us afterwards. And because it was in the social setting, everyone kind of stayed afterwards until they got kicked out of the bar to have drinks and talk about what they were seeing and why. And uh, we had information on cyberbullying in the program notes as well. So they had everything sort of there to really understand it. And I think it was a positive impact. I was listening to a podcast about Amanda Todd and thinking about Retea Parsons and like Dido wasn't that much older in the story than these girls. And we forget that because we have this like, oh, well, she's a queen. Like she must have been like, maybe not geriatric, but fully mature, yeah, mature adult. And she wouldn't have been. She was very young. 
Yeah. And the other thing about Dido, too, is that, you know, she decides to kill herself in the opera and in this version of the myth um, because of the dishonor it's going to bring her be- when Aeneas decides to leave and not marry her or stay by her side. And that really translates to a lot of experiences that female identifying people have uh, today um, that our choices are not valid by society's standards and therefore we will be shamed. And I was just thinking about how that high school can be a very stratified world in terms of hierarchies and the pressures of that and the, the comparisons that can be drawn to a setting where there are these social hierarchies in terms of royalty and where you, what the pecking order is there. Like that yeah. strikes me as a really powerful uh, corollary. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's also just such a place where we really start digging into our identity like as young people and where a lot of it's formed and informed as well, or at least that first sort of layer. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, yeah, it did work really well. I didn't get to see that when it was first done in Vancouver. And I, I'd love to hear of it coming back in order to take part of that experience. It reminds me of like a 21st century morality play, but... <laughs> minus the incredible (laughs) religious fervor. Yes. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I hope I can remount it one day. And sort of bringing us a bit closer to what you're currently working on, Debbie, um, we know that you're doing some pretty exciting things right now involving opera and virtual reality, which for many people might not be things that ever align in their minds when they think about um, those two forms. Could you describe to us your work in VR? This is definitely one of those um, things that emerged from bringing in new artists into the art form. And I describe the virtual reality experience as a choose-your-own-adventure meets epic opera. And again, we asked our team, like, what would opera look like if it were created or invented today? And we kind of, like, hooked on to the ideas uh, from the early Baroque days of Western opera being born of audiences being immersed in these really larger-than-life stories and uh, these performances by actors that would just bring audiences to tears and just draw everyone in. And we came up with the idea of virtual reality because uh, you literally are completely immersed uh, in, in, in a story world. Music naturally does that for us. But in terms of like the visuals and the graphics, virtual reality lets us be inside another universe um, wholly. And that was really exciting to me, um, as was the idea of using motion capture, which is basically a recording system that that records the body movements of and facial movements of a live actor. And being able to motion capture and facial capture opera singers, bringing to life uh, like mythological creatures inside of an immersive like fantasy universe just sounded so nerdy and so fun. And, um, and then we took it one step further and decided that it would be even more fun if the audience could, uh, again, kind of feel like they are co-creators in the experience. And so we give them agency in this experience. They can interact with elements in the world and it changes the orchestration they will hear. They can choose which branching storylines to follow. So each operatic experience is unique to their, um, their kind of inputs into the story. How long does it take to make something like that? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, it's the it's kind of a first of its kind. You know, there's Mm -hmm. been operatic experiences or performances where there's motion captured people and they're in a virtual world in real time. And that's kind of a known pipeline. But in terms of creating like, for example, an interactive score, uh, our composer, Brian Topp, who was already working in uh, virtual reality composition and audio experiences, he has so many things to think about when he's composing. He can't just write a score. He has to write like every single moment that happens. And it's not a linear thing. It's a very um, sort of stacked up process. So if, you know, if I'm playing, if I'm the audience member and I decide to stand around for an extra five minutes, he has to have music for that extra five minutes. Or if I decide to blast through the experience in two minutes flat, then he has to just like have a, you know, musical narrative that'll still hang together for all of those kinds of parameters. And so um, we have to work as a team very in like intertwinedly. (laughs) That's not a word, but we're like on meetings all the time. And every single minute of content that we get through has to 
be done together. So it's a good thing we mostly get along. I'm just kidding. We get along. <laughs> <laughs> I love my team. They're the best. <laughs> what would you say are the next steps for that project? Well, we are we are finishing the we call it opera industry ready prototype uh, this week. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Please let us make this deadline. Um, we're finishing it this week, so then we are hoping to send it out to anyone who has access to a headset and is able to test it for us and give us feedback. Uh, because you know what I love about working with digital uh, tech artists. I don't know what to call them. <laughs> I don't know what to call, call that whole brand sector. new field. I know I'm yeah. like uh, my digital opera tech artists. I don't know. <laughs> love it. Um, but what I love about working with all of these artists and these collaborators is that they come from a very different way of doing things, and so there's this constant like uh, process of iterating and making mistakes and trying things out and letting people in to give us feedback right away. And there's a lot of value placed on that. And that's such a great um, change from, you know, as a classical singer, I spend like, you know, like maybe three hours a day locked in a room with no windows trying to figure out how if I sound okay. And then eventually I'm going to perform something for a bunch of people and then they're going to judge me on it. And it feels horrible most of the time. Um, but so coming from that kind of like, you know, tradition into this, like, let's make something messy, get people to tell us what works and doesn't work. And then let's keep going and do that whole process again is really cool and, and uh, informative. So we are, we finally have a full prototype for people to test out. And we're going to see what happens when we get that feedback and, and then get back into development. Yeah. And based on your findings and experiences thus far, how do you think VR could be functioning in opera's not too distant future? Yeah, virtual reality is, uh, during the pandemic especially, it's been really neat to be in that space because uh, I, you know, with working with other VR people, we often meet in the virtual world. So put on the headset and we're meeting in these social VR spaces. And I thought it's just going to kind of feel like another Zoom thing where you're on a flat screen and doing your thing. But it's actually so fun because sometimes I will meet with my friends in their like brand newly created worlds that they've just put together and they'll take me for a tour on their on their beautiful worlds. And it'll just be like, oh, great. I'm just literally traveling around in an imaginary universe right now. Um, and you get, you see people's physical movements and you still see them on a, you know, 2D screen, of course, but there's something that's still much more embodied um, about virtual reality experiences. And so it'll be really interesting to see how we can, you know, capitalize on that and bring it into the operatic space when we are in these times where we really can't connect or be in physical space. And then also find out how it can just be incorporated into what we're doing so that it can open up the ability for people across the globe to access each other or access performers and performances uh, without all of the travel and, you know, the eco footprints that that comes with. It sounds like a great tool for accessibility as well. Accessibility in VR is a really interesting uh, topic right now because, for example, um, I do work with some deaf artists and I can't bring them into the virtual world because there isn't really great ways for us to be able to sign and uh, communicate using sign language because of the hand tracking things in virtual reality experiences. Um, and so there's 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 a lot of conversation about accessibility right now. But as you said, for people who uh, are living with disabilities um, and are physically incapable of it, uh, attending a concert or going out every night to, you know, to a venue, this is a great way of just immersing them in that world and, and bringing them in. Renaissance Opera is also doing some interesting things with the podcast format in terms of podcast as primary vehicle for delivering artistic content. Well, I'm wondering what's different when an opera is being created specifically for a podcast experience. Well, I think, again, this was one of those things where we brought in a bunch of really amazing, amazing, amazing artists from all different disciplines, all different walks of life. And we had an opportunity to say, like, what can we create together? And we were working within the confines of the pandemic. Uh, originally, we were going to be producing a in-person live indie opera festival called Indie Fest, which we run every year. And so when the pandemic hit, we had to quickly shift and figure out how will we direct our resources now so that we are still bringing in as many artists as we can and what can we create that's going to be able to enter into an already 
saturated digital space um, where we, you know, we don't have the capacity to make huge live stream multi-camera experiences. It's beyond us. And um, I just happened to know some really great podcast producers, uh, some really great composers, really great writers. And the idea of an audio drama came up uh, as a really natural kind of like stepping stone. It's something we can all do from our homes or with limited bodies in a physical recording space. And it is already an oral sort of audio experience. And so bringing the operatic drama and mind sense and tools to that process seemed really kind of a natural thing to do. Um, and the I think what was special about this podcast is that we intentionally brought together this team of really diverse people. And we went through this process of really building trust in the ensemble and building trust amongst each other and with the other artists we wanted to bring in. And we were struggling with really big questions at the time, like, you know, just first of all, being artists and losing all our work. But at the same time, with the implications and impacts and of, of the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the rise in uh, acknowledging that systemic racism exists in our world. And for a team that is predominantly people of color, it was these things were heavy um, and they were they were challenging to to deal with because we were coming from all different uh, backgrounds. You know, I come from Chinese settler background, but some of my colleagues are indigenous and some of my other colleagues are white males. And, you know, like we all had very different experiences of what was going on and having to come into community and conversation with each other and trust each other enough to have those difficult conversations and then to create a story about the future we wanted <laughs> together um, was was really beautiful um and challenging in uh in a in a yeah the best way possible i think and i think that was the best part about creating this this uh podcast was that it was a safe format for us to work in but and it enabled these really important conversations and a new community of artists to emerge from it yeah, I was looking at the list of everyone who's involved, some of whom I, I know and have worked with personally and some of whom I don't. But I just looked at that list and I thought, what a fantastic team of <laughs> incredible voices and perspectives that you have working on that. And and hello to everyone. Hi, Jess, and hi, Renai, and everyone who's working on that piece. <laughs> Before we let you go, Debbie, are there other works in development um, or that you're aware of that are exciting you right now, particularly when you think of new ways of imagining scale and immersive capacities in opera? So right now at Renaissance, we have a few different projects that are coming up the pipeline. And uh, one of the ones I'm really excited about is a live stream using some of our computer-created um, avatars. So we're going to be looking at having these live stream 2D performances, but with opera singers animating uh, avatars designed by our 3D artists. So I'm really excited about this. Um, it's going to sort of exist in the Orpheus VR universe, but it's going, it's called Live from the Underworld, and it's a broadcast from Persephone and all these people and in, inhabitants in the underworld. And we're aiming for Halloween, so I'm very excited. I hope people will show up in costumes, and whether we're in person or online, we can uh, still have a Halloween party. Um, but I'm also... Uh, I'm also really interested, and I'm biased because I'm producing it, but um, I'm really loving the ASL opera that is being created right now by Landon Krentz and Monique Holt. And what they're uh, playing with is, first of all, the idea or breaking down the barriers of what our voices are. Because as hearing people, we think about our voices as something that we you know, makes sound and comes out into the world. But what Landon has taught me is that, you know, there are people who hear with their eyes. <laughs> and uh, I love this idea that he's uh, kind of opened my mind to. And I, I hadn't seen things in that way before because of my own ignorances. And so we're talking about singers who are, uh, who are signing and the similarities between ASL poetry and musical rhythm. And Monique, the librettist, has, uh, is diving into this idea of creating new mythologies for deaf communities and what it means to not have stories and deaf people represented in our cultural narratives and how we can create more fairy tales and myths uh, to give honor and, and shed light on those lived experiences. So I'm super excited to see that come to life uh, in the next couple of years as well. 
You know, after talking to Debbie and Duval, I really feel like immersive theater is kind of having its moment right now. We're so disconnected from our own lives. Like, I barely leave my apartment except when I have to and to walk my dog. Uh, I don't know. Do you go out much, Julie? I don't. But I like what you're saying about immersive theater having its moment is in the past when I've thought about immersive performances, I've thought about those times where I was like squished in really tightly with a group of people like in a weird room and I couldn't quite see. And then you got dragged down the hall to this other thing. Whereas what this has revealed to me is immersive can take all these different shapes and forms and it has nothing to do necessarily with physical proximity. Right. And like, we don't, like you said, we don't get to experience theater or immersive theater as we did before. When I think about immersive theater, I really low key think about Robert Wilson and everything facing forward as like, we're working in this very functional, rigid, defined space. You, turn everyone forward and it makes the audience sort of omniscient because you're seeing everybody's mm. emotions at the same time. Then you have the really next level kind of immersive theater where you are going to different locations and you're jammed in together and you're being led around. And that's like the next level. And, but then what Yuval and Debbie are doing is like completely like out of the stratosphere compared to that. And it feels like it couldn't really be possible to do at the extent they're doing it, being embraced the way it is right now. Because, like, we aren't living our lives the way we normally do. Like, we go through our own personal tragedies, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, COVID has brought a lot of death to mm -hmm. people's lives. And people are not able to experience funerals mm -hmm. and people are not able to experience the joys like weddings, births, visiting babies. Like we're doing this all in a very mediated flat through the screen kind of fashion. If at all, and right? If at all. Yeah. 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 And so it feels like immersive theater is sort of an antidote to that. Outside is safe safer. Right. To attend an artistic, yeah. Yeah, like being inside with people is very dangerous right now. But being in a park, being in your car in a parking garage, right? like these are safer things. Mm -hmm. Putting on a headset and just entering a virtual world. Exactly. And it's kind of a safer space, yet completely wild and creative and new like it's almost mm -hmm. the wild west in a sense at the same time and it can be very rich mm -hmm. yeah absolutely experience i what debbie was saying about the team that she put together for the podcast so another way of experiencing mm -hmm. art was that they were reckoning with the past and the present and some difficult things around that to then create a story about the future i was also really struck by what debbie shared in that it's like we get these people together to work on a project, some of whom have never worked in opera before. And then we create a process that's going to feel good to us and feel inclusive and supportive of the artists. But then we don't know what's going to result. So there's this openness about the result and the possibilities there, which reminds me about what Yuval was saying about potentiality and getting excited about audiences getting excited to experience something they didn't even know could exist. And like that all kind of comes back to what Debbie said about what if opera was completely contemporary? Mm-hmm. What would that look like Yeah, if we didn't have this rigid idea of opera must be X, Y, and Z based on things that were done 300 years ago? Mm -hmm. And in that re-exploration, I loved what you've all said about how that can be loving so that these aren't like violent deconstructions for the sake of violent deconstruction, mm -hmm. but it comes from a place of love in the sense of not thinking that the original work is invalid in any way, but because of the love he bears for the art form. He wants to see what has it not yet revealed to us about itself. Right. I mean, I can't imagine to go back to Bohem backwards. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine thinking to do that if you didn't absolutely love the source. Yeah. Yeah. Like that to me seems like a complete act of affection and curiosity. And it seems like he's approaching it yeah, with such tenderness for the characters and for the original story and the original music that it's coming from that. Um, yeah, like you said, affection. That's really beautiful. 
Now I'm curious, Robin, what Yuval was saying about, you know, we asked him like, where would you like to set an opera that you haven't yet? And he said that what what he's drawn to is these historical places in a city that have resonance for the city in terms of the history of that place, in terms of the stories that have yet to be told or aren't told enough. Like when you heard that, thinking about like a Toronto context, what came to mind for you? I thought about the idea of setting things in Black Creek Pioneer Village or Fort York and places that have a lot of history behind them and not often pleasant histories but how you can really bring things to life with immersive theater and engage mm-hmm. with things and reckon with things re- very differently. Like, um, for example, two summers ago, I went to see this project called Circus Riot. And it was about a true bit of Ontario history that involved some clowns getting into a fight at, <laughs> at a brothel. But it was this hilarious bit of history. It was produced at the junction in a parking lot. And you basically, you know, you started in the tent and went through what the circus was like at that time. And then you got shuffled off to the to the brothel to the bar where there were pole dancers and there was beer drinking and peanut eating and then you got to go out and riot so you got to really engage with with this history and be part of it and understand it in and and as absurd and as silly as the story was it was just a really cool way to understand history right it it wasn't this one dimensional on a page in a history book. Mm-hmm. It was this real living, breathing thing that happened and you could understand it as happening and how it, why it happened. I'm glad to like talk about the Toronto context because I was really drawn to the fact that, okay, you've all done this stuff in LA and then he's going to be in Detroit and then Debbie's on the West Coast in Vancouver. And I, I was struck by how they really use the specific places and the specific artists in their communities to do their work. And yet there's principles to what they're doing that could be applied to any community globally. And so I appreciate you making the, the Toronto connection for us to like, here's an example of this kind of thing happening here, or for listeners to start thinking about what are the possibilities in terms of us staging these kinds of works here in the city. And as a director, how would you approach immersive theater? Where would you put it? I think like what's coming to mind for me initially is not so much about a specific place, but about the idea of surrendering control, which is really interesting to me in the sense of putting down some foundational groundwork because you want the experience to be meaningful and you're going to make conscious choices about the who and the where and the why, and yet really wanting to leave all that space for the audience to have control over their experience to a certain extent. Um, I agree with you about Black Creek Village and those places where for the last century or so, it's been like, this is history. It's been like a very rigid, perhaps, um, and not so alive telling of history, that the idea that by virtue of having a live storytelling event happen in those places, that it it just humanizes things as well. Because I think that's the, that's the trouble, I think, with the history book approach. Um, well, and it's so mediated too. Like mm-hmm. when history is written in a book, it's written with a very specific agenda. Yeah. By a very specific group. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of bringing it to life, you're giving audiences different perspectives. Yeah. Making it easier to question. I think about the CN Tower and I think about Toronto Island, mm-hmm. um, particularly yeah. there, the fact that they're on the waterfront, that they're connected with the waterways, like just thinking traditionally and over millennia, how those places might have been used and revered and visited. And then what they are in the contemporary Toronto context. I think that would be really rife for exploration. That's it for episode 14 of Key Change. Thanks so much for joining us. We love hearing your comments and feedback and look forward to hearing your thoughts on what we talked about today. Tag us on social at Canadian Opera or drop us a note at audiences at coc.ca.
We appreciate all the feedback we've received so far, including your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Next time on Key Change, we're revisiting the topic of opera and criticism. If you recall, we first chatted about this in episode 10 with classical music critic Anne Majet, and there was so much to explore that we broke this one into a two-parter. So we'll pick up that thread next time with Karen Fricker. Karen's a longtime theatre critic who writes and reviews extensively for the Toronto Star. We talked to her about arts criticism as historical record, the idea that our critical interpretations of productions now is an important lens for future generations to better understand the context in which a show was created and staged. And speaking of the future, we'll also hear from Karen about how Canadian youth are being empowered to find and use their voices in response to what they see on screen and on stage. You definitely don't want to miss it. Bye, everyone. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly e-opera newsletter at coc.ca slash eopera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange. <laughs>